0: Good morning. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord this morning to worship together as the body of Christ, to honor our Lord and worship. Um, You know, as the summer is coming to a close and our children are going back to school and we are returning back to our regular cadences and rhythms, our church here has been encouraging our congregants to remain vigilant and to stay focused. And the reason that we do that and the ways that we can do that are by staying in prayer, studying the word, remaining in fellowship, but also availing ourselves of the resources that we have. So uh, every week our church sends out the family worship guide. And if you're not familiar with it or if you don't receive it in your mail, please let us know, we'll get that set up. But the family worship guide simply just contains uh, various things, things like a review of the sermon that we went over the past week, Questions for you to think about uh, by yourself and with your family. Also, a link to the podcast that we do every Sunday. In addition, there are lyrics to the songs that we'll be singing the following week in worship to prepare yourself. And in the upcoming weeks, we'll also be including material um, from Sunday school. So you can reiterate a lot of the principles that we're teaching here in church on Sunday with your children. It's very important to remain vigilant, especially in this culture that we live in today. If you look out and watch TV or get on the internet, it seems that the world is devolving week by week, month by month. And it seems so clear that the world needs Christ, that the world needs the gospel, and I'm sure that you would agree with me. I remember about 20 years ago, it's shocking to me that it's been 20 years, makes me feel really old, but about 20 years ago I remember walking into our kitchen and talking to my dad. <laughs> and It's funny because he's right here, but I remember my dad asking me a few questions. He asked me, do you know what's going on in the news? And I said, no, I have no idea. And then he said, have you thought about who you're gonna vote for or why? I said, nope, it doesn't really matter to me at all. I remember saying that to him. You see, at that time, the only thing I really cared about was what was going on in school, and if the Sixers were gonna make a deep playoff run. That is literally the only things that I was thinking about. And I think at that time, 20 years ago or so, sentiments like that were shared by many people. Fast forward to today and it's very different, isn't it? Everyone seems to have a very strong opinion about things, whether it's politics or the culture or whatever it might be. Everyone has a very strong opinion. They ardently hold their position What seems unfortunate to me, though, is that there are Christians, those who profess Christ with their mouth, but at the same time go on to try to play some sort of jujitsu to fit Christ into a framework where he doesn't belong so that they can affirm the way that they live and feel good about themselves. It's happening more and more. Now, there are those who might say, this is a terrible thing. I tend to think that it's a good thing. And the reason I think it's a good thing is because we live in a culture and a time right now where you are forced to examine what you believe. You're forced to think about it. What do you actually believe? You're forced to recognize that there really is no neutrality in what you believe. And you're forced to follow what you believe to its logical conclusions. Do you agree? Do you agree? Now. I find it very unfortunate when Christians or those who profess Christ tend to do that. This is most best exemplified in a book that I read a while back. And that book is called The Brothers Karamazov. It's a book by a Russian author. His name was Fyodor Dostoevsky, a very deep thinker. And this book has a character in it by the name of Dmitry. And he tells a fictional story about the... um, A fictional story that takes place in Spain, in Seville, about the Spanish Inquisition. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Spanish Inquisition, it took place in the late 1400s, early 1500s. And it was a time when the Catholic Church forced conversion by threat of the sword. So there were uh, Jews and Muslims who, if they did not convert, were threatened with death and often were killed. And in this fictional story, completely made up, fictional story, Jesus Christ returns but not in judgment he returns as he was when he walked the earth and Jesus Christ walks the streets of Seville, Spain and he is welcomed by the people he starts to gather quite a following he's performing miracles again he's speaking and he's teaching again the Catholic Church sees this what do you think they do? they arrest him They arrest him, they put him in prison, and they sentence him to death. And there's this very famous scene where the grand inquisitor, the leader of the inquisition, walks into the prison cell with Jesus Christ. And he looks Christ right in the eyes, and this is what he says. It's a very long monologue, but this is what he says. He says, Don't tell me about your love, because we don't love you. We don't want you here because you're in the way. You're getting in the way of our mission. Here you have the representative of the so-called bride of Christ talking to the groom right to his eyes, and he's saying, we don't want you here. You see, we want the good parts of you. We want the parts that we can apply, but we don't want the real you because the real you gets in the way. Turn your Bibles with me to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say to you also that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It's a very controversial passage throughout church history. Here you have Jesus, and he's walking with his disciples. And Jesus asked them a very simple question. Who do people say that I am? His disciples say, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're Jeremiah. Now, for any other person, that is high praise. For any other person, that is a great compliment, because if you know anything about Judaism, you know that Elijah and Jeremiah were titans of the faith, and even today, Jews recognize them that way. But this is Jesus we're talking about. Jesus wants to know what's actually on their heart, so he says, who do you say that I am? Peter, not surprisingly, steps up, and he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Very concise, a great economy of words, very powerful. Jesus goes on to say, Simon bar Jonah, or son of Jonah, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Why did Jesus say that, and why did he say it that way? He said it that way only to reiterate the fact that it was not his lineage, it was not his flesh, it was not his blood, it was not his intellect or his ability to reason and rationalize that brought him to that conclusion. It was only the divine revelation of God. That enabled him to recognize that this was the Son of God. And that is the case for you and I here today as well. But then Jesus goes on to say something else. He says, you're not Simon Barjona, you are Peter. And on this rock, what is this rock that he's talking about? This profession, that Jesus is the Son of God. On this rock, I will build my church. On this foundation, my church will be built. Now, I don't know much about construction. I don't know anything about construction. We have someone here who might. But I do know that if you have a foundation with a big crack in it, if you have a shoddy foundation, the house that you build on top of it will not last. It will come crumbling down. Jesus says to his disciples, the foundation, this profession that Jesus is Lord, is a foundation that will never crack. It will never break. It will never be destroyed. And on that profession, the church will be built. Now hear me this morning. That profession, that foundation, is not only the foundation of the church, it is the foundation of every individual believer's faith. It is the foundation of your faith. It is the foundation of my faith, that Jesus is Lord. Now here's the thing. Every authentic Real believer, their foundation is this profession. And their worldview, how they view politics, how they view family, how they view the world, how they view the culture, is built on that. It is built on the profession that Jesus is Lord, it sprouts from that. So, my question for you today is this Is your worldview built on that profession? That Jesus is Lord? Does it all come from that? Or are you simply cherry-picking the parts of Jesus that you like and just fitting him into a framework of your own construction so you can feel good? Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you. We thank you because you are a good God. You are a gracious God. Lord, we recognize that Jesus is Lord. We recognize that on that profession, our faith is built. On that profession, your church is built. Lord, I pray this morning that we recognize that we need the real Jesus and all of him, not just the parts that make us feel good. We thank you, Lord, for all you have done. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Over the past few months, we've been in a sermon series called King and Kingdom. We've been in this series for quite some time. Today, we are in a sub-series that Pastor Billy cleverly titled The Sermon on the Move. And I like that title because it works on two levels. On, On one level... Um, Jesus is continuing to teach and preach on his way to the climax of his ministry. In another way, it is indicative of the transformational power of the gospel in the lives of those who heard it at that time and also in our lives. Last week, Pastor Billy spoke about the tax collector Matthew and his dinner with sinners. He talked about how the tax collector was seen as bottom of the barrel and that interaction that they had. Today, for our passage of focus, we will be looking at Matthew 9, verses 14 to 17. Let's turn to Matthew 9, verses 14 to 17. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and makes a worse tear. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. As we read this passage, the first verse probably grabs your attention. It grabbed mine. Here we have Jesus. He's leaving this dinner with Matthew and the tax collectors. Um, We recognize that the tax collectors were seen as bottom of the barrel, and the reason they were seen that way is because they collected taxes on behalf of a foreign government. Jesus was dining with him and other sinners. As he walks away, he's approached by a group of men. The Bible says here that they were the disciples of John. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, don't they recognize Jesus? Don't they know who he is? Don't they remember what happened in Matthew 3 when Jesus was pronounced the son of God when he was baptized by John the Baptist? Don't they remember that? Why are they here? The truth is they lived in a time before Twitter. They lived in a time before social media. They lived in a time before the internet, television, or even radio. So for them, they had no idea who Jesus was. They didn't know him. For them, he was a man who was not fasting on the day he was supposed to. Turn your Bibles with me to Acts 19. Acts 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether this is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were all in about 12 men. So here we have this interaction that Paul has with these other disciples of John. And they don't know who Jesus is. They've never heard of Jesus. They don't know what the Holy Spirit is. They don't know anything about it. And if you see, this is in the book of Acts. So this is after the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this is after the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are likely hundreds or even thousands of disciples of John who have never heard of Jesus. And so, here, we have these disciples of John, and they are coming to ask him why he is not fasting. So we have to ask ourselves a question before we go any further. What is fasting? What is it? Why is it done? What is the point of it? You see, fasting is something that has been misinterpreted and misunderstood for years in Christendom, even today. I remember when I was a kid, I was about probably 13 or 14 years old, and I remember telling my mom that I was going to fast. And I fasted for dinner, I skipped a meal, and then if I felt really, like, holy, I would fast for breakfast, too, I had no real rhyme or reason for doing it. But you know what I thought? I thought that if I skipped dinner or skipped breakfast, that God in heaven would look down on me and say, see this guy, this guy's got it. This guy's special. That's my guy. It's completely delusional. It's completely delusional. In the Bible, when we look throughout Scripture, there was really only one fast that was instituted by God. It's in the Old Testament, it's the book of Levi- uh, in the book of Leviticus, and it is on the Day of Atonement, the 10th day of the 7th month. And during that day, it is commemorated the atonement of sins, the cleansing of sins. It is a day of anguish, it is a day of deep reverence, it is a day of consternation, of reflection, of sorrow, of mourning. One day. Now here's a principle that I think we really need to understand man in his fallen state will always corrupt and pervert that which God has instituted. Always. In his fallen state, he will always do that. Here's an example. Genesis 2, verse 23 to 25. We see that God says, for this reason, man will leave his father and his mother and will join with his wife and they will become one flesh. In those two verses, God has defined what a man is, what a woman is, and what a marriage is. Just like that. In two verses. That's Genesis 2. Genesis 3, you have the introduction of sin, the fall of man. Now here's my question. How soon after that do you think that fallen man perverted what God instituted? How soon after that do you think? One chapter. Genesis 4. The next chapter. You have Lamech having multiple children with multiple women. You see the proliferation of sin throughout Genesis... You come to Genesis 19, you have Sodom and Gomorrah and perversion run amok, and you even have it today. Man takes what God has established as sacred and holy, and in his fallen state will pervert it. And fasting was absolutely no different God instituted it as one day in the Old Testament, the Pharisees took it and made it completely about themselves. They made it as an opportunity to draw attention to themselves, to let off an air of righteousness so that others might see. So how did the Pharisees truly view fasting? Turn your Bibles with me to Luke 18. Luke 18 verses... 9 to 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself God, I thank you that I am not like other people, like swindlers, the unjust Here, Jesus tells a parable where the Pharisee is saying the quiet part out loud, right? The Pharisee is saying, thank God I'm not like this guy, or this guy, or this guy. Thank God that I'm a Pharisee. I pay my tithes, and I do what? I fast twice a week. The Pharisees established a system of fasting where they fasted every single week two times. So likely the time that Jesus, in our passage of focus in Matthew 9, where he's having dinner with the tax collector, it was likely on a day when they were supposed to fast. And that's why they come to him and they ask him, why aren't you fasting? Today is one of the two fasting days. You shouldn't be doing that. But Jesus has a response to them. What does he say? The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? He uses the analogy of a wedding, and he talks about a bridegroom. Why would he do that? Church, this is why it's so important to understand historical context. When we understand historical context, we can see the Bible in in a more robust way. Rabbis at that time, when it came to fasting, made certain exceptions. There were certain days when you were not supposed to fast, and one of those days was a wedding. You don't fast on a wedding day, because a wedding day is a day of a celebration. You shouldn't be fasting. Now we just celebrated, my wife and I, our 12th anniversary. So it's been 12 years since we've been married. And on our mantle in our living room, there's a picture of the two of us walking down the aisle together. (laughs) And I look at that picture all the time, and it reminds me of how old I have become. (laughs) I had no gray hairs in that picture, none. And I'm much obviously weaker than I used to be. But I look at that picture and it takes me back to a time when we were so excited about getting married. And those weeks and those months leading up to that beautiful day, my wife, I remember, was so energetic about getting everything prepared. I remember she went to florists and she went to cake bakers and vendors and all those sorts of things to prepare for that day. And those of you who are married can probably relate to what I'm saying. My favorite part, though, of that entire process was the food tasting. I remember that. She would take me to these different vendors and we would just have a meal to decide if we wanted to go with that vendor for our reception. And I remember always thinking, I want to make sure that this food is delicious but I also want to make sure it's not too expensive. I want to make sure that it tastes good, and I want to make sure that everyone there can enjoy the food. Now, I want you to imagine for a second that my wife and I are at the head table of our reception. We're sitting there, and we're looking out at all these people who have come, our friends, our family. They're all sitting, they're enjoying the food, enjoying each other's company. And then I look out, and then I look at the back table, and there's this group of guys sitting around a table with their faces drawn out, as Pastor Billy described in Matthew 6, how the Pharisees would do, faces drawn out, looking tired, looking exhausted, looking like they didn't want to be there, pushing the food away, saying, nah, no, 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 I'm, I'm fasting. Can't do that. How do you think we would feel? I'm pretty sure I'd walk up to them, and I would say, it's your deal, man. What are you doing here? Why did you even come here? It's not about you. Jesus is looking at these Pharisees and these disciples of John and he's saying, don't you get it? Discern the times. Understand what's going on. The bridegroom is here and he's looking you right in the face. But you've constructed this worldview of your own and you've become so blind that you don't see that I'm standing right here. Think about it. These Pharisees don't see the same God who instituted the fast standing right in front of them. He's the one who instituted it in the first place. But they've become so blinded by their own worldview. What about you, church? Now, I'm sure that you don't fast two times a week, going out on a limb and saying that. I don't know, maybe some of you do. But are there things that you do to give off an air of righteousness? Are there things that you do to give off an air that you're doing the right thing, but behind closed doors, you're really not? Is it church attendance? Do you come to church every single week just so Pastor Billy can get off your back? just so others will say, oh, they're doing the right thing. But behind closed doors, nothing. Behind closed doors, you're still the same. Nothing's changed. Or do you come here because you stand on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and that profession and your worldview dictates to you that you love Christ, that you come here to worship him, that you come here to serve him, that you come here because you love him. And that you want to know more about him. And you want your family to grow in Christ. Is that why you're here? Because if it's not, then really we are no different than these Pharisees and these disciples of John who are questioning Christ. So here's the question. What happens when you don't stand on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and you're simply trying to cherry pick the things that you like about Christ and try to put it into your own world view. What, what happens then? Jesus tells us. Verse 16. <clears throat> but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Jesus goes through a few examples. The first one is of a garment with a tear in it. Now, my wife will tell you that I hate clothing, uh, shopping for clothing. I hate going uh, shopping for clothes. Absolutely hate it. Because every time I buy something that I like, I take it home, I wash it, I put it in the dryer, and it shrinks. And it's a little too tight, and it doesn't fit anymore. Jesus is saying that when you take Christ, which is a fresh garment and you try to patch a hole in another garment that has already been in the washer and already been dried and already shrunken, that little tear is gonna grow when you put that new garment in the wash. It's gonna tear and it's gonna rip a hole bigger than the first one. When you try to put Jesus into your framework, when you try to put him into your worldview, it is not sustainable. It's a contradiction. It doesn't work. It won't fit. And eventually it will tear. Let's go on to the next example. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. In Jesus' time what they would do is they would take the skins of an animal, they would form it into a vessel, And then they would put wine in it for the fermenting process. When they put the wine in, the wine would expand that wineskin, and then they would take the wine out. But now you have an old wineskin. If you take new wine and put it in that expanded, old, dried, cracked wineskin, and it expands again, it's going to burst. And then the wine will be lost. When you take the wine of the gospel, when you take Jesus, and you put him in your old, cracked system of Judaism or your old cracked system of whatever it is that you believe it is not sustainable the gospel will be lost because your system will break there's an old theologian that I listen to quite a bit he gave another more modern example that helps me understand this concept a little bit better too He once said that when people look at Christians, when they look at people who've converted to Christianity, they often think it's like an upgrade to your computer. I'm sure you have computers and you've seen when your computer needs an upgrade. In the bottom right on that little toolbar, it'll tell you upgrade, upgrade. And then you click it, you install the upgrade, and then what happens? It does its little thing and then it tells you to restart your computer. You restart your computer, and now you have a few little new features that you never had before. That's what a lot of people think Christianity is. That you come to Christ, and now you have a few new features that you never had before. You might be a nicer guy. You're a better husband. You're a little more tolerant than you used to be. You let go of some bad habits. Is that what it is? Is that what it is to be a Christian? This theologian goes to say that that's not what conversion to Christianity is at all. What Christianity is, is taking a hammer to that old computer and completely destroying it and throwing it in the dumpster. It's a new computer all altogether. It is completely different. Is that the case with you? Is that the case with you? Or are you simply just trying to upgrade some areas of your life? Or have you fully submitted to Jesus Christ? Let's turn our Bibles to one last passage. Luke 5. Luke 5, verses 37 to 39. This is the synoptic gospel of Luke. It's the same exact account, but there's one additional verse that we didn't find in Matthew. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will spill out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And here's the new verse. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. That's a very troubling verse. That's a very, very troubling verse. What Jesus is saying is that there will be those who will drink the new wine. They'll take a taste of it, but they'll say, you know what? I like my old stuff. I don't want this new wine. They will hear about Jesus. They will hear the gospel. They will come to church. They will sing the songs. They will go through the motions. But in the end, they're exactly the same because they want their old stuff. Hear me this morning. Just because something feels good, just because something is comfortable, does not make it right. Oftentimes, the right things are the uncomfortable things. Don't let comfort dictate whether something is true or not. What should dictate that? The Bible. The Word of God should dictate what is true and what is false. This morning, I pray that this is not the case for you. I pray that for you, that new wine is all you want. That is my prayer for you this morning. Let's close our eyes in a word of prayer. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just thank you, God, for this time. This time that we could go into your scriptures and go into your word. Lord, we pray that each and every one of us here stands on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. Stands on the firm foundation that Jesus is the Son of God. That he is our Lord and that he is our Savior. And from that foundation, we pray, O Lord, that our worldview is built. Lord God, we have tried so many times to live the way that we want, and each and every time, it has only led us to failure. Lord, may we not be the ones who just taste the new wine only to turn away from it. But Lord, I pray that we love it, that we cherish it, and that we are completely transformed. Lord, I pray for every person in this room. I pray for all those who are listening. I pray, oh God, that we love your word, we love your commandments, that we love your laws, and that we follow you because we love you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for all this. It is in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. Amen.